Welcome to Fruitful and Multiplying, a podcast from the Jewish Fertility Foundation. I'm your host, Ilana Frank. The first commandment in the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. But what if, due to infertility, that path isn't so straightforward? This is a podcast about the fertility path less traveled. From the inspiring and the inspired, and the cutting-edge technology and science that continues to evolve to make it all possible. All right, here we go. I'm so excited to introduce you all to my friend Jody Radoran. Jody has been the editor-in-chief of The Forward since 2019. Before that, she spent more than two decades as a reporter and the editor of The New York Times. She's also a longtime digital innovator and was the executive producer of the multimedia series One in Eight Million, which won NewYorkTimes.com's first Emmy Award in 2009. She also serves on the board of directors of The Fuller Project, a nonprofit newsroom doing groundbreaking investigative work on issues that affect women. Jody grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, and graduated in 1992 from Yale University, where she was managing editor of the Yale Daily News. She and her husband, Gary, live in Montclair, New Jersey with their twins. Now to get personal, I met Jody at the Jewish Women International Conference in DC. Woot woot. Jody immediately shared her fertility journey with me, including her two abortions, which she's written about in some detail in the foreword. Today I'm excited just to dig deeper with Jody and to learn more about her journey and experiences. Okay, Jody, why don't you start by sharing your family building journey with us? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, it's just funny to talk about this because it's I my my I think my story is kind of right in the middle. Like it you know, it was not kind of the simple, natural, easy way that you read about in storybooks. But as soon as you get into the community, the fertility journey community, you get exposed to all manner of things. And I know I had a much easier time than a lot of other people. So, um, I mean, I guess I'll start with a little bit of a prequel, which is ridiculously around the time I was turning 30, um, I started to get stressed that I was never going to find a partner and never going to have a kind of the, the traditional family setup I had thought about. And so it's probably because I had a lot of older friends, I think, and I'm the youngest. So my two sisters already were on their family journeys. And I started to think about like, well, maybe I should have a kid by myself. And I actually did some research into that way before I should have. Um, but then a couple of years later, I did meet the man who would become my husband. Um, we met in late 2002. We got married in late 2004. Um, I was 34 and he was 42 when we got married. And so we were like, let's get to it. Um, and so we started trying to have a kid right away and it did not work so well. Um, we were living in Chicago at the time and we went to see a doctor. We got referred to the Northwestern Clinic, which is a really great um, operation as I remember it. And we did not have like a super clear diagnosis, but there was a sense that it was probably just a matter of getting the sperm to the egg wasn't working perfectly. So we um, tried IUI, no no hormones, no nothing, just the kind of turkey baster method. And it worked on the first time. And it was, we were like, okay, we got the easy plan. And I got pregnant the first time. Um this is a little bit of a sidebar, but I'll share it. Um, so I was in Chicago. I was the Chicago bureau chief of the New York Times. And that is the type of thing you do 
uh, for a period of years, and then you go on to some other job. So I was trying to figure out how I could, um, what job I was going to get that I that would justify having my husband quit his job that he'd had for 19 years and leave the city he expected to spend the rest of his life in. And I got that job. I became um, deputy metro editor of the New York Times. Um, I guess that I got the job after the IUI, maybe, I can't remember exactly, but in any case, before I started the job, I found out that it had worked and I was pregnant. And I remember really clearly um, telling my new boss who was a man and who I didn't know very well. And I said, um, you know, I was supposed to start in August and I was due, like, I don't remember when, but anyway, I said to him, I'm, I'm, I have some news. Um, it turns out I'm pregnant and I gave him the whole spiel. And he, I said, I really, I ended by saying, I really don't know what I expect you to say. And he said, um, congratulations. And I thought that was actually the perfect thing to say. Um, so I moved to, to New York that August. Um, I actually moved kind of by myself. My husband stayed behind for another number of weeks to finish up things at work. Um, I was living in this like corporate apartment and I was, you know, showing I was pregnant. I was pretty excited about being pregnant. So I was also telling everybody I was pregnant. I was about 20 weeks pregnant when I moved, maybe 18. And then, um, so I, so obviously I was switching OBs and switching, you know, I getting all new doctors and I went to go have my, um, level two ultrasound, which you're supposed to have at 20 weeks and which everybody had told me was this like great thing where you get to see the fingers and toes and wiggle around. And if you want to learn the gender, you can learn the gender and it's a very exciting thing. So anyway, I went to have it. Um, I messed up the the timing. I thought I just showed up on my 20 week appointment and had the level two, but you actually have to schedule it with somebody else. So I ended up having the level two at 22 weeks and I went by myself to the appointment um, first time in this particular office. And also my first time having a level two ultrasound, obviously my first time being pregnant. Um, and it was like, not exciting at all. It was really slow and um, kind of annoying. She kept telling me to kind of turn around and turn over and nothing was really happening. And I didn't know what was going on. And then finally, after like 45 minutes, um, she called in this other doctor. She said she was having a hard, hard time finding what she needed to see or whatever. She called in this doctor who very quickly looked and said, um, said, you have a, um, your, your fetus has a serious neural tube disorder um, and you need to get in touch with your doctor right away and consider termination. And you're alone. Um, I was alone. <laughs> okay. I mean, I had already, I had sort of like made peace with the idea that we weren't going to have this fun, like you're supposed to see the fingers and toes. And I just hadn't really considered that this could be a traumatic experience that I would like need somebody with me. And I should go back to say, um, I had had a CVS um, mm -hmm. to determine chromosomal abnormalities and it had been clear. I had had the spina bifida test, which had been negative. Um, the spina bifida test should have caught this neural tube disorder. Um, so that was a false negative that I had. So the I, I was, you know, like, well, what do you mean neural tube disorder? What is that? Um, and he explained a couple of things. He said that the fetus definitely had um, club feet. They could see that on the ultrasound and also that I hope I don't have this backwards. The there's a thing in the brain that's supposed to look like a lemon and it look like a grapefruit, or it's supposed to look like a grapefruit and look like a lemon. I can't remember which one it is. I'm sorry, um, but that was and so those were the two signs they could see on the ultrasound. And I said, well, what does that mean? What kind of you know what what will we be looking for um, if 
we complete the pregnancy. And he said, um, this doctor said, you know, it would be a really big range. He said, you know, it could be literally the only real physical um, problem is the club feet. Um, or it could be that the fetus would be confined to a wheelchair, um, the baby, the child, whatever, um, for their whole life. And in terms of um, kind of mental capacity, they said it could be a sort of like maybe finished high school situation, or it could be a kind of profound, I'm pretty sure he used the word retardation, although I would not want to use that word now. Um, so that was pretty shocking and obviously a very big range. And he was like, you got to go see your OB. Before this, never... what was your reaction? So you're you're getting all this information alone in the room. And do you remember what your reaction was? I mean, I was mostly just completely unprepared and stunned. I am like, I am, you know, I am, I am like a problem solver and a doer. And a so I just was, I think I went fairly quickly into like, what's next mode? What do I have to do? So first of all, I had to go to my other doctor because he was, he's like, this is all I do. I read this ultrasound and I'm done with you. Go to your doctor who was a doctor I did not know. I think I had been to her once before when I went maybe not even once. So I go to her office and I just walked. I was in, this is in the, in Manhattan. And um, I go to her office, which is like crazy crowded, but they usher me right in. And then she basically tells me essentially what the say, what he had said. And, you know, says I would recommend termination, you know, and you, and by the way, you need to do it immediately because 23 weeks after 23 weeks, you won't be able to get an abortion here. Um, you, you'll only be able to get it in a certain Actually, they, what they told me was in Kansas, like you'd have to go to Kansas, which I still don't really fully, I've tried to research back exactly what mm -hmm. the laws were, but they've changed a lot. But in any case, I was getting to this end of my second trimester. And so that was, I was getting to a threshold of viability that um, some states were very restrictive about abortions. They're like, you should terminate and you should decide very quickly. Um, the other thing that happened was she gave me her cell phone number, which this is like 2006, and it was not so common for doctors to give you their cell phone numbers at the time. It seemed like that that was a real sign to me that this was a very- I'm not sure it's so common right now. Yeah, I don't know, but it, yeah. I remember that very indelibly because I like called my husband, called my sisters, and I was like, you know, this is really serious. They're giving me their cell phone numbers. Right. I also called my friend, um, a, a work friend, Lisa Tazi, who um, was like, a friend, she was not my, you know, very best friend, but I can't even fully remember why I called her, but she immediately came um, okay. to be with me. And, um, and my husband made plans to, um, to fly in. So um, I, I said that I wanted to get a second opinion um, on just reading the ultrasound. And they referred me to a guy named Mark Evans, who was a doctor who very much, you know, worked in this area. Um, and he was on the East side. So I called um, Lisa, my friend, she met me around Columbus Circle. I remember very clearly we were like walking across town to get to this, the, Mark Evans's office was in a kind of a townhouse on the east side. Mm -hmm. And he read the ultrasound for me right away, also gave me a cell phone number, also said you should terminate and you should, um, I would advise termination and, and you should do it quickly. Um, he he also, I mean, he told me a little bit more about his background and who, who he was and who he was, was actually one of the named plaintiffs in um, the Supreme Court case around what um, critics call partial birth, partial birth abortion. So he is an advocate for kind of abortion 
without restriction. Um, he is somebody, and as he later described it to me, and we'll get to this back to this point in the journey later, but he said, he's like, I'm about helping women have healthy babies. Um, so his, his philosophy and his, you know, what his practice was about was helping people, um, you know, terminate unhealthy pregnancies if they wanted to and um, doing, doing, using other treatments to just ensure uh, or give the best chance at healthy pregnancies and healthy births. So, but, so we went, to, we went to his office, again, kind of all the same information. I felt, I started to feel very concerned that I was getting only kind of one side of the picture. I mean, that all I was hearing was the same exact thing from three different doctors. Um, so my husband was, was flying in from Chicago to meet up with me. And um, I, what I was starting to think about was I needed to understand what the case would be uh, for having, for completing the pregnancy, for, for continuing the pregnancy. Um, I felt like I needed, I, I guess I just felt like for a due dil, from a due diligence perspective, like before I made a big decision, I needed to know what the other side of that decision was. And I wasn't hearing that from these doctors. Were so, your, was your husband on the same page? That's a good like, question. What was, I mean, you don't, this is not about him, but do you remember? No, it's a really good question. Feeling? And because I'm, I'm trying to remember, like, you know, we had this weird travel situation. So I think I set this in motion of getting that information, like before we really had the chance to talk much. I don't think he was, I mean, I, it's not like I was saying, I don't want to terminate the pregnancy. What do you think? I just was like, we need more information. That's, that's sort of the kind of person I am. I'm probably a little more like that than he is but he's also a little bit like that and certainly very tolerant of me being like that. So, um, so what happened was I, I had a friend who'd had a, um, a, a baby a few years earlier who had a, a fairly serious um, brain issue, neural issue. So I asked him whether he might know a doctor who we could talk to. And he connected me with the um, head of pediatric neurosurgery at Columbia. Um, and we got, we were like, his name was Dr. Neil Feldstein. And amazingly, my friend hooked us up to get us an appointment with him the next morning. So Gary came in late that night, Lisa, Lisa, my friend kind of handed me off to, to Gary. I was pretty shaken up. Um, but I don't really remember being like, you know, I just, it was, it was very much like, let's get this information. Let's make this decision. Let's figure out what we have to do. I did go back. I'm trying to remember when I went back into the office. I mean, there definitely was this thing about like, well, everyone knows I'm pregnant. And I had said, I was just going out for this level two ultrasound. And now I had to call in and say, I'm going to be late. I'm not coming back. And now what was going to happen? So that was kind of, that was also happening. Um, anyway, we went up to Columbia the next morning. We had this meeting with Dr. Neil Feldstein and, you know, he said, he said, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'll, I, what I do is I'm the person who I'm the, I'm, he's the opposite of Mark Evans, right? Mark Evans is the guy who helps you have a healthy pregnancy. Right. Neil Feldstein is the guy who deals with babies who are born with major um, neuro issues. So he's mm -hmm. like, let me, let me try to tell you what the baby's life would be like, what the first 24 hours would be like in specific. And so he started to describe that. He said um, it would be very likely that the baby would need surgery within the first 24 hours of their lives um, and probably multiple surgeries. And he sort of confirmed the diagnosis of, of like, we don't really know the extent of, of, the, um, of the defect. 
So there's this huge range of outcomes, but this is my best guess. And it was, it sounded pretty terrible. I mean, it sounded really, really dire um, in terms of what the baby's life might be like. And so we asked, I asked um, really bluntly, which is kind of my way of being, I said, you know, why would anybody carry this pregnancy to term? Like who would carry this pregnancy to term? And he said very bluntly, people who think abortion is murder would um, go through with this pregnancy. So in other words, if for you terminating a pregnancy is really not a choice, not something you're going to consider, then certainly you would um, have to carry to term. And there's a lot, and he, he explained there's, there's lots of services. There's, you know, there are lots of, you know, we would be here to, to take care of this baby, but it seemed very clear that that's not who we are. Um, we don't believe abortion is murder. And the idea of kind of making a choice that would put us into that space and sort of surrounded by families who came to it for maybe that reason um, uh, did not feel right at all. So we made the decision pretty instantly in that moment. You know, after I wrote my story and wrote about this part of it, um, I got some feedback from some people who, who did knowingly carry through pregnancies with either neural tube defects or other kinds of debilitating um, conditions. And they said, you know, it is not true that the only people who, fin who, who complete a pregnancy despite knowing there is trauma um, do it because they believe abortion is murder. Some people just, that's what they, they do it for other reasons. And so I feel, you know, that's that's my truth as it happened in 2006. But I do understand that, you know, obviously he was saying what his experience was or I was hearing it um, in my state uh, in the way I heard it. Um, but certainly I, I am aware that, that it's not 100 percent true that the only people who complete pregnancies like this um, have a certain set of beliefs. But in any case, we knew then that we, we felt like we had asked the question, what would what what was the reason to keep the baby, keep the pregnancy? What would, what would the baby's life be like? What would our lives be like? And that we were clear that we wanted to terminate. Um, and then we went to the movies. <laughs> we really didn't know what to do. Like, right. I was like, should I go back to work? Like, what, what do we do? And we just um, went to the movies. We went back to Times Square on the subway. And we went to this big movie theater that has all these escalators that go up. And um, there was nobody there. It was the middle of the day on a weekday. And we went to see um, a movie and we held hands on the escalator and we cried a lot. And that was the end of that. And then we um, flew back to Chicago to, to have the procedure, um, mostly because we felt much more comfortable there in terms of the doctors, like there were doctors mm -hmm. we knew there. Also, as I said, I was staying in this corporate apartment, which didn't seem like a good place to deal with this. My sister lives in Chicago, so we went and stayed with her. It was also um, right in the middle of Hagim, so we were like, it seemed to make sense to go back. So we flew back to Chicago, um, had the procedure in the next couple of days, actually on Yom Kippur, um, mm -hmm. which we were told was what we had to do, what we were supposed to do. Um, so what was the role that I guess a rabbi would play in all this? You were told that you could do it on Yom Kippur. How, how did you include a rabbi in this process for you? Um, that is a good question. And I, I have only two real memories of what, what and how we engaged the rabbi or what we asked the rabbi and how we engaged them. Um, I guess I kind of already knew that, you know, Judaism was generally okay with terminating pregnancies. Like, I don't think I, mm -hmm. 
you know what, Alana, I want to be honest. I'm just not actually sure. It may be that we called our rabbi right away to consult on the whole decision, right. but I don't really remember that. I do remember saying like, is there any, you know, should I take Yom Kippur into account as part of the scheduling? No. And then what I also really remember, so I, I said at the very beginning, um, and I know, I'm sure you know this and that every guest on this podcast has experienced this. So you know, so as soon as we got home the first day or probably before we start Googling neural tube disorders and we get connected up with all sorts of, at that time, it was really like listservs, basically, not, not necessarily like Reddit groups or whatever, but right. with all these different online communities um, of people who had gone through traumatic pregnancies and you start, and also everybody that you know, who you didn't know that they had a troubling and traumatic fertility journey you start to learn that they did and they start to tell you their stories. So immediately we were engulfed by stories that of, of all kinds of things, people who had um, stillbirths, miscarriages at nine months, babies born who lived for you know, only a handful of hours, born with you know, very severe neural um, problems, um, people who made difficult termination decisions, people who kept, I mean, all manner of Is this of affirming? Is this helpful? Is this hurtful? That's a great question. It was definitely both, it was super affirm, affirming and supportive. I mean, very much instantly you're like, oh, this absolutely, you are not alone. Lots of women go through this. Many women you know go through this and many, many women who have healthy families now have went through something like this on their way to having a healthy family. Um, so there was a lot of affirming. It is also terrifying and sad. I mean, there is just a lot of pain and trauma and horribleness out there in this, in the fertility sphere. People go through all manner of horrible things. And, you know, you feel, you feel better that like your situation doesn't seem as bad as those. You feel guilty. You feel terrified. All, all the things, all the feels, as they would say. Um, one of the things that I discovered through that was um, that a lot of people who go, who terminate um, relatively late in their term in, in a situation not unlike mine, um, that there was a lot of like ceremony about around it. A lot of people had funerals and named um, their babies slash fetuses um, and different things like that. So that was my real question for the rabbi, like whether we had some obligation or even just tradition um, that would speak to this moment in, in that way. And what he told me was, uh, you can do absolutely whatever you want, but like from a Jewish law perspective, this, what has been removed from your body is considered uh, medical waste. And there's no responsibility to have any kind of funeral or service or shiva or anything like that. Um, so he certainly was like, if you want to do something, you can, uh, we did not. Um, so that was, you know, we, we, we just, you know, we had the procedure and that was the end of that chapter. Um, any regrets about not one. doing anything, any ceremony or anything like that? Mm, great question. Um, no, no regrets. Okay. I mean, I don't want to make you have a regret right now no, I'm thinking I about think it. Um, I will say, so this experience of having a traumatic pregnancy, of learning what I learned, of making the decision, of having the procedure, um, and all the things that come next that we'll get into in chapter two, um, 
<clears throat> is an important thing for me. It is part of who I am. It's part of what I know. It's part of how I relate to other people around their fertility journeys. But um, the the fetus is not. I do not mm -hmm. think about the baby we did not have. I really like almost never think about that pregnancy and what might have happened. So the idea, so the idea of so I don't regret not naming it or having a ritual around it. Like I just because I don't ever think about it in that way. I think about it as an experience that we had, right, but right. not as like a person that didn't get born. Okay. That's honest. I appreciate that. All right. That's a lot for chapter one. Now we're <laughs> that is to chapter, chapter two. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, which I guess I'll get to chapter two, but um, I, I'm surprised I didn't actually start this way because the the way what I normally say when people ask me about my fertility journey is I've been pregnant twice I've had two abortions and I have two kids, um, and that that's kind of my headline, mm -hmm. um, and so that's what happens next. So um, wait, back up one second. So at what point are you starting to blog? Um, I've never blogged about it. I, I or write your, okay, forget the blog is the, is not the right thing, so, but you wrote no, it. No, I never. Um, so I was, I am a very like <laughs> open, honest and transparent person. Mm -hmm. And I would say probably certainly compared to your experience and probably compared to many, I talked about this pretty openly with friends and family, but mm -hmm. I, I did not write about this until, um, last year. So, oh, so like um, really, okay, I never okay. wrote All a word about it until it, um, right. last year. Okay, so, right. so for another 15 years or whatever, I did not like speak publicly about it or write about it. I wasn't super private about it. People in my orbit certainly knew about this, but it was not something that was part of my public persona at all. And why last year did you make the decision to start writing? Um, I mean, I suppose it was a, combination of two things. I mean, the thing that specifically prompted it was the Texas law um, that went into effect that, that, you know, virtually eliminated abortion and the, and the fact that there was very likely to be, uh, or there is going to be a Supreme Court challenge um, to Roe v. Wade. So that was the kind of thing happening in the world that triggered it. But it's probably worth saying that, it, I mean, it's equally as important that at that point when that happened, I had been writing a personal political weekly column um, that it felt like it fit into my public life in a way that was meaningful and that I, I had the platform on which to write that story. Whereas in my other, I, I wouldn't say I, because there have been other times, in fact, in 2016, there was a major push for people to tell their abortion stories publicly around a different um, set of legislation and challenges to Roe v. Wade. And I did not do that. Um, um, I did not do that at that time because I was not in that mode. I mean, I just, I wasn't there as a writer. It wasn't, it wasn't what I was doing. So those two things right. came together for me last fall. Um, and, uh, that's why I ended up writing it. Got it. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Chapter two. Chapter two. So yeah, I thought this would be a funnier conversation than it's turning out to be. Well, it's how can, really, how I'm can you make kidding. this funny? You were hilarious and that's why I wanted to bring you on, but this isn't meant to be funny. I'm this kind is, of kidding. Um, anyway, so after the procedure, we uh, now, my husband Gary was ready to move to New York now. So we drove back across the country together 
um, and kind of started our lives in New York. Um, we went after they told us, I mean, the, the doctor in Northwestern, I think, had said that we needed to wait. Um, I think, I think they said we just had to wait like one month, maybe two months after um, the termination to start trying again. Um, it turned out to be two months. I think they might have told us one month originally. Anyway, we went back to the OB who had given me her cell phone number. Um, and she uh, she said that we should go straight to IVF. She, I, I had told her, I said, look, we had done IUI. The first, we got pregnant on the very first time with IUI with no hormones. Why do you think we need to jump to IVF? And she was like, you just do, so whatever. And, you know, I will say one of my kind of complaints about this industry is you're so vulnerable and you, you know, for all the research you do or whatever, like they are the experts and you sort of do whatever they tell them, whatever they tell you to. I, I'm fairly certain I could have gotten pregnant again with IUI. Why not? But, and the other thing is that the incentives are, there's a, there's a flaw in this system in that everyone has the same incentives. Like generally in systems, there are some competing incentives or tension around them. And so that creates a good outcome because there's some balance, but here, the families, the moms, um, the women, whatever, are desperate to have a child. The fertility doctors, their whole kind of reputation is around how successful they are in getting people to have, to be pregnant or to have healthy babies. And so everybody just wants to like push, 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 do, do the most aggressive thing you can. Um, and I think, you know, some are probably better than others, but my experience was that, you know, they were like, okay, here's this person who had this traumatic pregnancy, like, let's do our best chance of getting her pregnant as quickly as possible, that's going to be IVF. And um, I mean, it worked out fine, but I think that was, I don't feel great about that. It doesn't feel super comfortable, but we went ahead and did it. Um, and we, um, so I, I did one IVF um, and it was successful. It wasn't wildly successful. We produced four embryos um, and, um, but that was enough. So the way it worked then or for in this clinic was you would have this procedure, they harvest the eggs, they sperm them up, and then you come back the next day to see. See, that was kind of funny. You sperm the them implantation. up. <laughs> you come back the next day. Um, so when, when we left, the first day they're like, you got four embryos, we should implant all four. I was now um, over the, I was now 30 six, I guess, or about to turn, I think I was about 36. And so they're like, now you're over the 35 threshold. Now you're in another high risk category. So they're like, well, we should implant all four. And I was like, I don't know, that seems a little crazy, but whatever. I came back the next day and they were actually, one of the embryos had not um, developed as robustly. So they're like, actually, we should just implant three. I said, I really think we should just implant two. Um, there's no sign that I have any problems carrying. Like I had had a, you know, my pregnancy was going fine. It was just this neurological disorder. They said, no, 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 we should really implant three. This was the other place where I felt like the incentives were all messed up. And um, I was like, okay, you know, you're the doctor. So they implanted three and all three took. Um, I think that's the technical term took. Um, implanted, grew whatever. Yep. Um, so that uh, brought us to another decision point because um, the, the data on carrying triplets is pretty grim or was pretty grim at that time. I'm sure this is some of the, one of the things that has advanced, but the, the, the statistics for like uh, bad outcomes for mom and bad outcomes for babies on carrying triplets versus carrying two 
are pretty stark or were pretty stark. Um, and the so there was a, a, a strong sense that if we tried to carry triplets, um, you know, they would be born very early. They could have some pretty negative outcomes. I could be at high risk for yep. surviving or certainly for not having um, side effect, you know, in long-term health issues. Whereas two was a much more reliable, um, people really knew how to, how to deal with twin pregnancies. So we were once again faced with this kind of dilemma um, and we tried to do some due diligence around that too. We did this research around that I just shared. And it was, one of the challenges with this one was to really try to distinguish in our minds between these facts people were telling us about true medical outcomes for mom and babies versus just the kind of like complete mind blowing idea of having triplets, which, you know, sounded like a lot, you know, mm -hmm. to take on at once um, and kind of not what we would have chosen, um, but kind of having to deal with a lot and not what we would have chosen didn't feel like a very good reason to consider um, what's called reduction, pregnancy reduction um, versus medical outcomes. So we did a little more research. I mean, my, my very generous sister um, stepped up to say, if you guys wanna have the three, we will do whatever we can to support you financially. We'll get you all the help you need so that you can take care of three babies. Um, very generous and loving and supportive. Um, anyway, we found ourselves back in Mark Evans's office on the Upper East Side, Brownstone. And Mark was is a guy who does what's called selective reduction. Um, and that means selecting one or more of your embryos or your fetuses to remove, to reduce, to terminate, essentially. Yep. Um, and he said the same thing he'd said before, or maybe it's, this is when I really remember him saying it. He said, look, I'm in the business of healthy pregnancies and helping people have the families they want. So, you know, I'm about abortion and selective reduction as a means to making it work for you, making your family work for you. Um, that's, that's what his job was. So we, we ended up deciding to go ahead and do that. Um, and, you know, I, really would like to believe that it was all about the data that people were showing us about the dangers to the babies. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I also know that it's a lot more societally acceptable and kind of you can get your head around raising twins versus raising triplets. So that's what we decided to do. Um, he did the procedure in his office. Um, there's one more little piece of this, which it makes me really uncomfortable. So we had not found out the gender of the first pregnancy. We were going to be the in the surprise. You know, there's so much of life is not a surprise. Let's let's let leave something for surprise. But with the after the traumatic pregnancy, we we were like, yeah, we'll we'll find out the gender. So um, so he, although I guess we didn't find out in advance. Yeah, I guess we didn't find out in advance. Anyway, when he said so, we so the so the how do you figure out which embryo? To do, I guess it's a fetus at this point. How do you find? How do you decide which one to take out? That's the next question, right? So the first thing they do is they do the chromosomal test. And if you have anybody with chromosomal problems, they would reduce that one. We were clean. Everybody was fine. The second thing that they do is they basically do a kind of geographic sweep of where everybody's sitting in your uterus to figure out if one is easiest to um, extract um, because that is the way to make, there's a chance when you do the selective reduction that you'll lose the whole pregnancy. So they want to minimize that risk. And so there's just kind of a physically, what is the best one to take? And he, he said, it doesn't really matter. You, you're, we can do any of them. 
them. It's fine. So then he said, so do you want to select for gender? And I was like, no, 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 we definitely do not want to select for gender. It seemed very, you know, playing God to sort of pick based on gender. And it, it brought into the conversation all sort of like weird political questions about, you know, the idea that you would prefer a certain gender to another gender. Mm -hmm. um, I did not want to be in that game. So I'm like, no, I don't want to know the genders. I do not want to select for gender. I said, just do whatever you think is medically um, simplest for the procedure. And I don't care. Um, which is what he said he did. Although what we, so we have um, a boy and a girl, they are 14 and a half now and um, great. Um, but I feel pretty certain that he purposely gave us one of each because everybody in society seems to think that's what everybody wants. And so- Did um, you ever ask? Nope, didn't ask. Mm -hmm. I've never spoken to the guy again, I don't think. Fair. I might've called him for, uh, no, I didn't. Okay. I did have, I did call his office when I wrote the story to check some facts about um, dates and things, um, but I didn't speak to him. Um, yeah, so, uh, so that's what happened. And then I guess the last piece of our journey is just that. So we had this selective reduction. I had a, a pretty fine twin pregnancy. I did throw up every single day, which was not a lot of fun, but I, but the babies were healthy. Um, they were born at 32 and a half weeks, which is quite a bit early. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, uh, were by emergency C-section, um, and they were therefore in the NICU for 15 days, but they, they were thankfully really just small, not unhealthy in any way. And they both, um, did well in the NICU and got out in 15 days and, um, have been driving us crazy ever since. Cause we're still, we're still parents, right? Right. Even though the journey was there, right? We still be normal parents. Wow. So talk to me. I mean, that's quite a story. And thank you so much for sharing that. Talk to us, like what gave you strength throughout all of this, you know, the ups, the downs, the all arounds, what, who did you rely on? What did you rely on? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, so I, I mean, I think that, Hmm. I, I guess, first of all, I, I will go back to this. Like I am a sort of very pragmatic problem solver what's next, put one foot in front of the other kind of person. So in each stage of this, it was really about like, what do we do next? Like there was not, and, and, I, and again, I was so lucky to have a relatively straightforward, each thing happened. There was a solution. There was a next step. Mm -hmm. It was, I was never like, we are never going to have kids. This is never going to work. I mean, we just didn't get to a point of any kind of desperation. Um, and it was very clear, like as soon as you open that door and you see how much, you know, it was just so clear that there were so many people around me who had had so many similar experiences, so many worse experiences and who had ended up with a healthy family. So I don't think it was like such a dark, horrible like time as mm -hmm. I know it is for a lot of people, but I think it was a little bit of just kind of, well, this is taking longer and getting a lot more complicated than we'd thought. Um, and there was a little bit of woe is me. I feel bad that how come it's not as simple for me as it is for anyone else. Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm one of three sisters. My two older sisters are two of my very, very best friends. They, they both had had kids already and they were certainly very, very supportive all, all through it. My husband as well was kind of right there with me very much giving me primacy as like, this is, these are ultimately your decisions, like as a feminist person mm -hmm. he was saying that but also very much like I'm with you in the decision um and I had a variety of of girlfriends and stuff who also 
talked me through it all. But I think it was like, I just, it wasn't like as huge a traumatic emotional deal. It was like, okay, this has happened now. And you work through it and you get the thing you need. And then you ask the questions and you get more things and you get to the next thing. Ever any therapy? No, I actually was in therapy briefly um, when we were first trying to get pregnant. And um, there were a bunch of other, it, it was this weird transition. I'd just gotten married and we we're trying to figure out when and how to move to New York. And we really wanted to be pregnant and it wasn't working. And I, I was in therapy briefly then. Um, and I actually went on an antidepressant mm-hmm. and within weeks I got pregnant and it felt both like maybe I should go off the drugs and also like, it, it just started to feel like the, the whole thing had been situational and not really depression because suddenly I got this job and I got pregnant and everything seemed fine. I was, I had, I was having a lot of trouble sleeping, which was one of the reasons I went to see the therapist and that went away. So it all kind of worked itself out. So no, I never had therapy around the lost pregnancy or anything. Well, I guess my last question would be, what is advice? I mean, you, you made it to the other side, even though it wasn't easy, you made it right. What's advice looking back now you'd give to either yourself or, you know, people who are in a similar situation now? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the fertility journey, and actually it's, it's similar to me to what early parenthood is like, which is when you are in it, it feels so completely overwhelming. It's everything. It's all you can think about. It's all you can talk about. Everybody in your circle is talking, you know, breastfeeding, how to get the kids to sleep at night, uh, being a twin parent, whatever, but also, you know, doing IUI, doing IVF, adoption, all these things. It's like so much. And it feels like it is defining your life and defining your identity. And, and much of it is really hard and really depressing. But the second you have your babies or baby or whatever, Mm-hmm. As soon as there is a baby in the world and you're their baby's parent, and then for the rest of the parenting journey, like all that stuff that came before, just it completely disappears. Um, it's also true that like when your kid is a teenager, you cannot even remember all the trauma around breastfeeding, you know? And I just think like, it's, it's really, I suppose it's uh, virtually impossible to take this advice, but it is really true that once you, once you, whatever it's going to be, whether it's that you're going to adopt or that you're going to have a surrogate or that you're going to have a a different kind of pregnancy or that you're going to end up deciding, you know, not to have kids. Um, Like once you get there to the, to the place you were trying to get and to the family you're going to have, all that stuff is like, it's, it's less than preamble. It's, it's like, you can barely even, you can't, you can barely remember it and you don't even feel it. I think because the, the, especially if you end up being a parent, um, that thing is so full and so overwhelming and so identity shifting that everything that came before just really diminishes. So I think, I, again, I, I, I would hesitate to say this as advice because I feel like it's kind of dumb to tell somebody who's like really in a traumatic place and going through very difficult stuff like, oh, just, oh, it'll all work out. And when it works out, you won't even remember this. But it is actually true. Like the challenge of actually being a parent and raising a family is so both overwhelming and affirming and life-changing that Mm -hmm. whatever it takes to get you there um, almost doesn't matter. I guess that maybe that leads me to a better version of this advice, which is like, try to make space to really think about what your goal is 
and to really strip away some of the societal bullshit that has formed what you think is your goal and to just get really serious about what do you need? What do you want? What are you trying to get out of this whole thing? And then be really open about what will get you there and just focus on figuring out the way to get there. And don't worry as much about the how and about the expectations and about what you heard or what you thought or what you imagined or what you dreamed when you were a kid. Like the point is to have this kid that you want probably. That's a good, that's a good life lesson in general. I mean, if that's, if that's what it's about for you is to really Mm -hmm. have the kid, then just figure out what can I do to have the kid? And once you get there, all that stuff will not even, it'll recede from your memory pretty quickly. I'll also, I mean, I'll say one more thing, which is that like, when I feel this particularly around being a twin parent, but I also feel this about being somebody, I mean, I say this carefully because my journey wasn't, you know, on a scale of one to 10, it was like maybe a three, right? Um, I'm glad that I had that experience of, of struggling with fertility. Like, I feel that I was connected to, I I don't know, like, I just feel like the community of people who've gone through this are that struggle, that experience, that searching for what's the right choice, what's the science, what's the emotion, what's the religious thing, like all of that feels like it was good for me um, in some way that it's like part of, I don't know that maybe things shouldn't come so easily. Um, Maybe the struggle makes you appreciate where you end up more or something. I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't have regrets. I don't like, oh, I wish I'd just, you know, popped them out. I mean, this is what it is. This is who we are. This is, this is everything about this is part of my family's life and my kid's life. Um, And I'm, I'm, I don't know. It was a, it was a path that helped to shape me. And I think I, I gained strength from it. I love that. Thank you, Jody. Thank you for being here today. And it was really just great hearing your story. Maybe not as funny as you anticipated, <laughs> but honestly, we appreciate every, everybody's journey and everybody's, um, you know, steps to growing their family. So thank you very much. Thank you for asking me and for having this podcast. I think it's really important. Awesome. Thanks for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Fruitful and Multiplying. And as always, reach out with more podcast ideas and feedback. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Jewish Fertility Foundation.